Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is the final episode of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. This episode will be dealing all about emotional health and the high price of ignoring emotional health. On July 11th, 2017, at 5.45 p.m. to be exact, Peter had received a call from Jill, his wife. She was in the ambulance with their son, Ayrton, on the way to the hospital. And for some reason, his son had suddenly stopped breathing and fallen unconscious. His eyes were completely rolled to the back of his sockets, and he was lifeless and blue with no heartbeat. Only the quick reaction of his nanny had saved him. She had rushed him to Jill, who was a nurse. Her instincts took over, and she immediately began to put her son on the floor and began CPR, rhythmically but carefully pressing his fingers, her fingers on his tiny sternum as the nanny frantically dialed 911. He was barely a month old. When Jill, his wife, had called him from the ambulance. He was in New York in a taxi on 54th Street on his way to dinner. After she finished telling him the story, he had just, without a shred of emotion, said, okay, call me when you get to the hospital so I can talk to the doctors in the ICU. His wife had gotten off the phone pretty quickly and it was obvious why she was so angry because her son, their son, had nearly died and the right thing for him to say was, I'm going to be on the next flight back home. Jill, his wife, had stayed in the hospital with the son for four days. She pleaded him to come home, and he had called them daily to talk to the doctors and discuss each day's test results. But he had stayed in New York, busy with his, quote, important work. Ayrton's cardiac arrest happened on a Tuesday, but he did not come home to San Diego until Friday the following week, which was 10 days later. Even today, thinking about his actions makes him nauseous in the stomach. He could not believe he did that to his family, and he he can't believe what a blind, selfish, checked-out husband he was, and he knows that he may never fully forgive himself for as long as he lives. He had talked to his close uh, psychiatric, a, a a medical school's classmate named Paul Conti, who was now a psychiatrist, And he understands that Peter actually had an addiction, and addiction can take many forms, not merely just drugs or alcohol. So Paul Conti is an expert in trauma, and he saw that Peter had displayed all the behavioral signs of addiction, which include anger, detachment, obsessiveness, and a need to achieve that that was fueled by insecurity. And at that point, Peter knew that he had to check into a facility so he could work on himself. It took him a while to realize this, but feeling connected and having healthy relationships with others and with oneself is an imperative, is as imperative as maintaining efficient glucose metabolism or an optimal lipoprotein profile. It's a two-way street between emotional and physical health. In his own practice, he witnessed firsthand how many of his patients Physical and longevity issues were rooted in or exacerbated by their own emotional health. He states that I see it on a daily basis. It is harder to motivate a patient who is feeling depressed to go and start an exercise program. Someone who is overstressed at work and miserable in their personal life may not see the point of early cancer screening or monitoring their blood glucose level. And I see this in... When I'm seeing patients as well in the clinic where they have multiple kids, 
they're stressed out at work, they have some sort of emotional health thing going on. And the last thing they even want to talk about is physical exercise and working on their diet and working on better sleep. So it's, I completely agree where it is a two-way street between emotional and physical health where both need to be addressed. So the next couple pages, he writes about his traumas growing up. And I recommend you just buying the book and reading the section. But Peter did experience a lot of trauma growing up. And I don't feel comfortable. Well, I feel comfortable talking about it. But I'd rather have you read the book yourself where he really opens up. So Peter's being very vulnerable about stuff that happened to him when he was younger. And there was a rule at this bridge program that he went to where you're not supposed to hand anyone a Kleenex when they're crying. They're supposed to get up and get it themselves. And at that time, Peter knew it was his turn to stand up and walk over to the Kleenex box because he had finally opened up about all his emotional and different types of traumas that he had when he was growing up. So finally, he had unpacked a lot of the the trauma that he was holding in for for decades. And this is also, he states that what makes it difficult to offer blanket advice to everyone about this topic of emotional health, because every reader will have their own emotional makeup, their own history and their own issues to address. Yet one difficulty that we all share is that medicine 2.0 is set up to treat mental and emotional health in pretty much the same way that it treats everything else, where we diagnose, we prescribe, and of course we bill. Here, we are more interested in emotional health, which is which incorporates mental health, but it also is much broader and less easy to codify and categorize emotional health. And it has to do more with the way we recognize our emotions and manage our interpersonal relationships. He did not have a mental illness per se, but he did have very serious issues with his emotional health that impaired his ability to live a happy, well-adjusted life and also potentially put his own life in danger. We have to be able to recognize potential problems early and be willing to put in hard work to address these problems over a long period of time. And our approach must be tailored to each individual with their unique history and sets of issues. So he's kind of talking about how medicine 3.0, it's again, very individualized. Even when it comes to emotional health, it's very individualized. Whereas medicine 2.0, it's diagnose, prescribe, and treat everyone similarly. We have to recognize that everyone has their own emotional past and we must treat these more specifically, which is what medicine 3.0 does. The key in medicine 3.0 or emotional health you know, 3.0 is to be as proactive as possible so that we can continue to thrive in all domains of our health span through the later decades of our lives. And he makes a really good point here. What makes dealing with emotional health harder than physical health, he suspects, is that we're often less able to recognize the need to make changes. So for our our physical health, we know that we can see visually in the mirror that we need to make a change. We can see in our lab work that we need to make a change. But when it comes to emotional health, it's a lot different to have a, like looking at yourself internally, it's a lot different because you feel like you don't need help and there's no 
numbers to quantify. There's no visible visible signs that you know you, you can you can quantify. It's all about like being able to recognize that you actually need that help. That's why it's harder than physical health. Now, looking back when he was a teenager and when he was in college, he realized that he was actually morbidly depressed, clinically off his rocker depressed. He didn't know it at that time, and a lot of us don't know it at that time, but he had the classic symptoms of someone with covert male depression, which were a tendency to isolate himself and, above all, a propensity to anger, perhaps his most potent addiction. So finally, looking back, he realized that he was depressed, but of course he was so busy, he didn't realize it. And also that his depression came out in different ways where he felt like he needed to isolate himself and he was always angry. Some of the changes he had made seemed like no-brainers. He made sure to spend more time with his kids, one-on-one with no phones, every day that he was home. He would check in with his wife on her experience not just the events of the day. He limited his phone time and his work hours to a strict window. One day a week, typically Saturday or Sunday, he would refrain from doing any work at all, some, something that he was not used to doing for decades. And one skill that he worked on a lot was the idea of refraining, which I'll get to in just a second. For his entire life, he had been accumulating most mostly you know resume virtues and he of course had plenty of those but he also recently attended a funeral for a woman about his age who had died of cancer and he was struck by how lovingly and moving her family had spoken about her with hardly a a mention of her impressive professional or educational successes what mattered to them was the person that she had been and the things she had done for others most of most of all her children Would anyone be speaking the way about me when it was my turn in the casket? He doubted it, and at that point, he decided to make that change. So just similar to the woman he went to the funeral for, he has a lot of accolades. He has a lot of success, a lot of fame, a lot of money. But again, how would they be talking about him at his own funeral? So moving a little bit forward to the next sections here. He had been practicing mindfulness and meditation since he left that bridge program. And again, mindfulness really helps us reframe situations. And another way in which mindfulness helps us is by reminding us that when we are suffering, it is rarely because of some direct cause like a rock that is crushing our leg at this very moment. Much more often is because we are thinking about some painful event that occurred in the past or worrying about something bad that may occur may occur in the future. So we're always, we're always nostalgic about the past, but we're also worried about things that may happen in the future. And Buddha once said that your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. Seneca improved on that in the first century AD, where he observed that we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And later in the 16th century, Shakespeare had a quote in Hamlet that said, there was nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So it deals a lot with our own thoughts and staying present in the, in the moment, being mindfulness, being mindful and not worrying about things that happened in the past and also not worrying about 
things that may happen again in the future. And if you take nothing else from the story, take this. If Peter can change, you can change. And this is the key step. You have to believe you can change and that you deserve better. He resisted seeking help for the longest time. And it was only when he had he was confronted with unbearable choices like losing his family or even losing his own life that he reluctantly agreed to do what he should have done a long time ago, which is pay attention to his own emotional health as much as he paid attention to his own physical health. As he settled into his next phase of recovery, he began to notice something that he had never experienced before. He found more joy in being rather than doing. And this is the last quotes from the book. For the first time in my life, I had felt that I had be I, I could be a good father. I could be a good husband. I could be a good person. After all, this is the whole point of living and the whole point of outliving. There's a quote from Paulo Coelho that he often thinks about. Maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything, he writes. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't really you so that you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. So that's how the book ends. He ends the book on the emotional health section. I think it's perfect. I think it's a perfect ending to the book where the first 90% of the book, it's all about what we really cared about, which is the physical health and the appearance and our lab work. But this 10% of the book is really what mattered the most, which is the emotional health, something that a lot of people neglect, including me. So let's practice some of these skills that Peter was saying. Let's practice the mindfulness. Let's practice taking time away from our phones and spending more time with the family and the ones we loved. And again, that's what is mattering the most. So that is how the book ends. We're finally come to a conclusion of Outlive. It was a pleasure kind of going through this book very slowly. Um, I highly recommend you reading this book. It's a book that I will definitely reread over and over again. There's just so much good information in here. And I feel like these short podcasts just barely scratch the surface. So I highly recommend it as a good read. Keep following Peter on all social media. Go listen to his podcast, The Drive. And again, thank you for listening to this podcast. And I hope you tune in next next time for the next book that I will be covering. So again, thank you for listening and I hope you learned something.